So today we're, we're in a series, beginning a new series on the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the Beatitudes. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is um, you know, people, it's famous, isn't it? It's kind of held up as, as just beautiful ideas, beautiful writing, but maybe something that's almost too exalted for us to put into practice. You know, sometimes, as I said in my little um, film clip that went out on Instagram, you know, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanted, it's been wanted, but not tried, because it just feels too hard. How can we do this kind of stuff that Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? Is that just idealism? But when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, for, for many people, um, there's a, a sense of, well, is this like um, the gospel, the kingdom mandate for the, for the, for the new community of the kingdom of heaven? Matthew's gospel is, is quite a Jewish gospel. And, um, and in, in, in the Old Testament, you have five books of the law, um, the law of Moses, Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And in those, Moses prophesies and says, God's going to raise up a prophet like me for you. And many people feel that Matthew's gospel carries that sense of who is Jesus. Well, he's a prophet like Moses. He's the new Moses. And in Matthew 5, when Jesus goes up on a mountain and, and sits down and begins to teach, oh, this is like Moses going up the mountain. And just like the law was given through Moses, Jesus is giving us the law. And are, are the Beatitudes like the New Ten Commandments? Well, actually, if you, if you look at um, Matthew's gospel, you'll find that there are five chunks of teaching. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount ends with a little phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and you'll find that five times around blocks of teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Look out for them. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and maybe those blocks of teaching from Matthew also represent an equivalent to the five books of the, of the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. And, and yet, there's something much more than that. Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, looks at the Ten Commandments, looks at the law, and unpacks them and takes them deeper. So, for instance, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, do not be angry with your brother. He goes on to say, anyone who calls his brother fool, and the Aramaic term is raka, will be guilty of hellfire. Now, and Jesus takes the, the, the Ten Commandments, he takes what Moses has taught us, and goes deeper. And why is it? Isn't it trivial to call someone a fool compared with murdering someone? Actually, that Aramaic term of contempt, raka, it's a very profound thing. When you treat people with contempt, that's when you could go on to do the most horrendous things to them. When we treat people with contempt, we other them. They are not like us. We despise them, and we will do unspeakable things to them. At the end of the day, the, the Nazis treated the Jewish people with contempt. They, they called them subhumans, really, and therefore they were able to do unspeakable things to them because they treated them with contempt. That's why it's, you could be guilty of hellfire if, if you go that way. Jesus is great with taking the letter of Moses' law and saying, but there's something deeper going on here that touches the hearts of human beings. It's not just about outward conformity. It's about what's really going on in your heart. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to limit ourselves today to the Beatitudes themselves. And we're going to limit ourselves to just two of them. But I am going to read all of them to you. Um, hello, what's that? Put my glasses on. Matthew chapter 5. And um, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth. And taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just as a something to notice, that the first um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is a now thing. All of the rest have a future dynamic. They shall. They shall be comforted. They shall see God. Apart from the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which has a both now and a not yet element. Um, you know, yours is the kingdom of heaven now, and you will, uh, um, yeah, your reward is great in heaven. So that's a little, there you are. <laughs> but but why, is, why is the blessed of the poor in spirit a now thing? Why is that number one on the list? Well, first of all, blessed. The word blessed, um, it actually translates a Greek word, makarios. And, and that's perhaps more literally could be called fortunate or happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Fortunate are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, oh, you, you've, been, you've been lucky. <laughs> Good on you. You're poor in spirit. That's, that, that is actually a blessing. But that in itself can seem very countercultural to us because to be poor in spirit does not seem to us to be a good thing, does it? In, in our psychological health, surely being strong in spirit, being, you know, being um, confident is a good thing. If, if, if the phrase poor in spirit, it speaks to us of someone who feels perhaps weak or, or lacking confidence. I don't know whether that's the connotation and whether many of you would feel, yeah, I should be, I should be poor in spirit. That's something to go for. It's an upside-down phrase for an upside-down kingdom mandate. Actually, what these Beatitudes are doing, they are not commands, they're descriptors. They're saying, this is what people of the kingdom are like. And I think that I want you to get hold of the fact that this is a description of kingdom people, and it's actually also maybe descriptions of the king, King Jesus himself. So I want to just press into what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And actually, could it be that Jesus himself is poor in spirit? Which, for many of us, I would never describe Jesus as poor in spirit. So what do you mean by being poor in spirit? Why is that fortunate? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, to help us understand what it means to be poor in spirit, perhaps we need to understand about the kind of people who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. Who does Jesus say the kingdom of heaven belongs to? Yeah, that's what we, that was what comes to mind. Children and the poor in spirit are both people to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. So why, why did children get to be people who the kingdom of heaven belongs to? Is it because they are absolutely innocent, beautiful, sweet-natured, sinless? Every parent is laughing. Because, you know, the Bible gives, it, it doesn't portray... Kids is perfect. It says, you know, they need they need to be guided and disciplined as well. We do, we, you know, we're not original sin kind of. Oh, 
unless we baptize them, they're going to go to hell. They're like us. They are people. But what's different about children is their agency and their need. Children need resource. Children need, what's strange about children is their lack of power. And unless they are nurtured, unless they are cared for, they're very vulnerable. And Jesus actually tells us to become like children, to, be, to become like people who are not holding on to power or using our own power. So it might well be that a better way to, to describe blessed the poor in spirit is to look at the opposite, which is not blessed are those who are self-satisfied. Not blessed who feel that they can earn their own salvation. Not blessed are those people who feel they can, they've got it all. But blessed are those people who are aware of how much they need God. One of the um, best analogies for this might be the first step of a 12-step program. And those of you familiar with the 12 steps of the AA movement and other recovery movements will know that step one is to admit that you are powerless. And that is what to be poor in spirit is, is to admit that I am powerless. I cannot save myself. And when I'm powerless, that might mean I begin to rely on a higher power in recovery language. And if the start of the Beatitudes, what does it mean to be fortunate, is to recognize I'm poor in spirit, it means that I start to reach out to someone who is greater than I. And Jesus unpacks this for us in a little parable. He tells us the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to pray. And the Pharisee is someone who is strong in spirit. He is proud of being a Pharisee. He says, thank God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. In fact, look at me. You know, I fast twice a week. I give alms to the poor. You know, I tithe. You know, basically, I'm able to do it. I'm, <laughs> I'm okay. I'm keeping the law. I'm, I'm great. Aren't I God? <laughs> He's someone who's strong in spirit. But there's one who's poor in spirit is the tax collector who doesn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. You know, woe is me. You know, is, is that so, you know, Lord have mercy on me. That's how the, the, the tax collector comes. He's poor in spirit. But Jesus says he's the one who goes away justified because he knows he needs God. And the people that came to Jesus in large numbers were the people who were poor in spirit, who knew they needed God. The ones who were perhaps on the margins of society because no one accepted them. Maybe it was the tax collectors and the, the prostitutes who Jesus said are entering the kingdom of heaven before you to the Pharisees who were on those, even, even yeah. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means I need God. So how can Jesus be described as poor in spirit? Jesus himself said, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, not by my own power, but by the spirit of God, a woman, a woman, your faith has made you well. Jesus is always giving, giving away, if you like, what he's been given. But he's able to receive it all because he's emptied himself. So when Paul is writing about who Jesus is, he says he's the one who emptied himself. Who did not count equality of God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. 
And Jesus models this to his disciples. The greatest among you will be like the servant of all. When he wipes the disciples' feet in John 13, he's saying, I've become little. I've become nothing. I've become poor in spirit. I've become someone who walks in dependency on the will of my Father, on the life of the Spirit that the Father's given me because I've chosen to empty myself even to death on the cross. And it's that poor in spirit Jesus that is elevated to the highest place, given a name which every knee shall bow before that name. And how blessed if we rely on, not on ourselves but on God to lift us up. So if we are poor in spirit, if we recognize we're dependent on God, we can only do what we see the Father doing. We can't build a temple unless the Lord builds it, we labor in vain. If that's who we are, then we're fortunate because that is actually true. I, I know myself as a, as a Christian leader, I stand entirely on the degree to which God chooses to be gracious to me or through me and that I've got nothing of supernatural, eternal value to offer anybody. It's only him that has. And, and I think we are that people. So we're fortunate if we've got that insight. It's like, you know, you're, you're fortunate if you know he's sick because you'll go to the doctor. It's actually fortunate that, that Peter knew he had an illness. And if, if, if he hadn't, if he'd felt, oh, I'm fine, I, I don't need to go to the doctor, he could have been in, 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 a, in a bad place. So... Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit today. If you come here today thinking, I can't live the Christian life. If you're saying the Sermon on the Mount is too hard for me, you're right. You can't do it. But God can live it in you by his spirit. So let's go to the second one then. That's the now, the starting point. Poor in spirit, right now, that's where I stand. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who wants to mourn? Who wants to grieve? I believe that our right response to what we see in the world today, the best response we can have is to mourn and to grieve and to call out to God. In our 8 o'clock service, our host for that service was a guy called Dave Baker. He's known to many of you. He's... Um, the CEO of an Olympus Trust, which is a big conglomerate of schools. Dave was a very successful headmaster. He's now a superhead. He's got lots of schools under his care. And he was hosting our service in the, in the crypt at 8 o'clock, which is a great service, by the way. You should all try it. Um, and he said, you know, actually, my week was upended because uh, during the school holiday, during the half-term break, one of our students died in a tragic accident. And he's describing the impact on him and the community and I think the Christian family of this 17-year-old who died. But we couldn't help, of course, remember today there will be children and young people in Gaza dying. We remember, of course, the absolute carnage and horror of the Hamas attack on Israel. But we also remember that in a population of just over 2 million in Gaza, a million of those people are under 15 years old. And that the casualties of war in Gaza today will be children and young people. And the scale of loss, of carnage, 
of death, of maiming, of trauma, of displacement, of, of fighting fear is too huge for us to really get our heads around. It's enormous, and it should provoke in us a mourning. It should provoke in us a cry of, how long, God, can this go on? How can we have allowed this to happen? How can the world contemplate a situation where such violence and destruction is being meted out and where innocent people are suffering? How long can it go on? How long can the war in Ukraine go on? How long can the forgotten conflicts of the sub-Saharan Africa go on? How long can the war in Yemen go on? How long can it go on? How long can so many thousands of people in our world, millions of people, be living with this level of fear and trauma? God, it's wrong. It cries out. The earth cries out, God, what's going on? And that's so often the cry of Scripture, the cry of the psalmist. But it's the cry of our hearts, isn't it? we look at that how can we look at that and our heart not to be broken we 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 how can we do it and and the right thing for us to do is to mourn and when we do that we share in identify with a god who mourns the trinity who mourn three passages of scripture genesis 6 god saw the world that he had made, that it was full of violence, that the evil of men's hearts was only, you know, the, the inclination of men's hearts was only evil all the time. He saw the violence of the world. It grieved him to his heart, Genesis. It grieved him to his heart. God, the Father, mourning over a world, a glimpse there in Genesis of what the God, the Father, is, is, is feeling today as he looks at our world. The God who mourned over the violence of humanity in Genesis 6 is the God that we see now mourning over what's happening in our world, who sees more clearly than we do. We see images on social media. We see images on the news. God sees every hair on every head. He hears every cry of every heart. He sees every sparrow that falls. How much more will our Father in heaven be grieving and anguished and indignant over the suffering that's going on in the war zones of the world today and particularly in the horror of this siege of, of Gaza right now. Jesus mourned. Jesus too wept over Jerusalem. Jesus saw the coming fall of Jerusalem, that siege, that horror, and wept on his way to Jerusalem. He wept at the graveside of Lazarus. He knew there was going to be an outcome. He knew there was going to be a resurrection going on, a, a, a raising Lazarus from the dead. He knew. He could see the future. He could see what was happening in just a few minutes' time, and yet he can weep with Mary and Martha at the graveside because Jesus enters into our loss, our mourning, right now. Today, though we are people who live with the hope of resurrection and we don't grieve as those who have no hope, yet we do grieve, and Jesus grieves with us. Jesus is someone who is familiar with sorrow and weeps with us. And the Holy Spirit mourns and grieves. In Romans 8, we have this magnificent passage where Paul describes the, the brokenness of creation. And even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we don't know how to pray. We, we're longing for, for the not yet. We have, we, we're so grateful for the now that God's Spirit is with us, but we're, we're longing for what we don't yet have, which is the final outcome, the final consummation, the final healing of planet Earth when Jesus comes again. And, and, and Paul says the Spirit himself groans with sighs deeper than words, the Spirit groaning with our groans for 
a broken and hurting creation. The Spirit calling out, Father, send your Son. Let, the, let Jesus come soon. Maranatha, Jesus come soon. How long until you come? So when we mourn with the pain of the world, then we mourn with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We imitate Jesus, who's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as that tells us. And so actually, what does it mean then for the mourning to be comforted? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, there is the ultimate comfort. There is the hope. Death is not the end. Suffering does not have the last word. In, in the coming kingdom of God, there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears. We have the Lamb who leads us to springs of water and wipes every tear from our eyes, the, the Father's heart. But actually, now, what does it mean to be comforted? And Jesus, when he was about to go to the cross, talked about another comforter who would be with you forever, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who's also called the paraclete, the one who's alongside, who encourages, comforts, and strengthens, as um, Corinthians tells us, that the, the prophetic does, the one who is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He is God with us when we mourn. But what does that look like to be comforted by the presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, it means that we do not grieve alone. One of the things about grief is that it can make us feel very isolated, very alone. Particularly if we feel people cannot identify with our suffering or if somehow to try and be cheerful is to minimize the significance of what's happened. Sometimes people find it really hard to come to church. Last Sunday, Rachel talked about coming to church in the light of the just the two days beforehand of her son being killed in a dramatic and violent hit-and-run accident. And, and, and in her heart, struggling to come to church, but coming and worshiping and finding God was here, for sure. But um, it's understandable. People may not want to come to church because sometimes our griefs are very private. The grief of a stillborn baby. The grief of a dream let go of the grief of carrying depression, the grief of a child that's wayward, the grief of things that we're ashamed about, and carrying those things and feeling reluctant to come to church, to that happy, clappy place where we're all celebrating. We need to have room in our gatherings for the Holy Spirit to help us to mourn. In fact, it's a command. James writes, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is to mourn with the Holy Spirit. To mourn over the broken state of the church. To mourn over the sins of those who lead us. To mourn over the degradation, violence, commodification of people that's in the world, to mourn over a creation that is being ravaged and destroyed. But not to mourn on our own, but to mourn with the Holy Spirit. That is a comfort. One of the best things that you can do to give comfort to someone who's mourning is to come and mourn with them, to come alongside them and, and cry with them, to, 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 to be with them in their mourning. 
That is what it means to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. He is there morning with us. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those kind of prayer meetings where you enter into the morning of God. It's only happened to me a few times, but it's been so memorable. When I show up at a prayer meeting, I show up as a discipline to pray. And we gather to pray, and something grips us, something, something connects us with the heart of God who grieves over a broken world. And we start to cry and intercede. And, and, and there is sometimes even a palpable and audible groaning in the room from us as we, we cry to God in prayer. Those prayer meetings are rare, but they are so precious because we are catching part of the heart of God that we sometimes don't make room for. And actually tonight, in our 6.30 quiet service, we were, we were spending a bit of time lamenting. Um, and that's, that's, the church does that in November, all souls. You know, we, we remember loss. But for us, loss isn't just those bereavements in our lives, but there's other losses that God knows about. We can mourn about those things. And the Holy Spirit is a comforter to do that. The second thing that, that, that is a comfort to us, the, the Holy Spirit can help us to live in, with the morning. Because the comforter is also a strengthener and an encourager. And many of us retreat from mourning because we, we just can't cope with it. It's just too hard to live with that pain. But sometimes it, we, we need to live with the pain. It's an enduring pain. And we need not to have hard hearts or to distance ourselves or to experience compassion fatigue. But we need to be able to stay with it. And I think the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is to give us a gift to stay with it, to enable us to do that, and to know that in, in God, joy and pain, grieving and rejoicing are not things that have to be held apart, but can be held together. And today I've been thinking so much about that psalm, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And that there is something in this extraordinary tension of the world that we live in things we have to juggle where we can know the, the comfort of the presence with us, mourning with us, but also giving us in our hearts a real sense of hope and a power to live and a power to be those that come alongside. And what better place to try and live this stuff out is when we take communion right now. And as we go back into worship of communion, when we take communion today, we will be saying, God, we're poor in spirit. We need to be saved. And as we Take communion. We'll be remembering Jesus who died on the cross to save us from ourselves and from the powers that are too strong for us and from sin. And giving himself on the cross to be willing to be broken so that we would be made whole. We'll be remembering those things. And we'll be looking forward as we take communion to a future heavenly banquet where all will be well and where every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne of God and, and forever. Swords will have been beaten into plowshares and we'll be at the mountain of God and we'll be feasting with our brothers and sisters from the nations and we will not make war again. And we'll also be saying that right now, Jesus who died is risen and his spirit is here. That's why we do prayer ministry during communion because we say his spirit is here and we're pulling down the powers of the age to come. The powers of heaven are here on earth. So why can we not bless one another, pray for healing, pray for reconciliation, pray for the gift of the Spirit to be with us, to strengthen us. So we're going to go in to do that now. And um, as we do that, we'll be in the heart of worship. And you won't be ushered, but you'll be in your own time. Just leave your seat. Come to one of the stations. Come and share communion with us. Again, today, if you're here and you think this gospel, this kingdom, this, this upside-down kingdom is something 
my heart leaps at, but I, I'm not sure that I'm in. And maybe this community is just for those who are in. Well, it is for those who are in, actually. But it's also an entry point for those who want to come in. For those people who say, Jesus, if that's what you're like, I, I choose to make you my king. I need you in my life. And, uh, and, and if today you want to begin a Christian journey and welcome King Jesus to be Lord, then no better place to do it than coming and saying, I'm going to take this bread and this cup as a sign of that commitment. And if you do want to do that today, if you come to the front and, and take, and come and find me. I'd love to pray with you and bless you as you begin that journey and, and help you make that place of entry. But I'm going to lead us in, in, in a, first of all, a time of, of repentance. Father, we're sorry that we, as a human race and us as individuals, have done things that have hurt you, hurt one another, and hurt ourselves. And we've colluded with powers of evil. We've colluded with hatred and darkness and anxiety and fear. But today we choose, Lord God, to ask for your mercy and to forgive us. And will you fill us again with your spirit and clothe us with righteousness? Amen.